Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Recreating ourselves and following our true calling and bringing meaning to the world and having success and fun along the way is something many of us are looking to do, especially during these times of uncertainty we're collectively going through at present. How do we find out what we truly want and what the world needs or may be missing? How do we go about becoming successful creators, elevating ourselves and those around us by our mission? My guest today knows a lot about that. He has been rightfully called a modern-day Renaissance man. Abel James is a New York Times best-selling author, known amongst others for his book, The Wild Food Diet. He's also a top 10 app developer, award-winning talk show host, and serial entrepreneur. And he has been named as one of the 100 most influential people in health and fitness. He's the host of the award-winning Fat-Burning Man Show, rated at Apple's number one health podcast in eight countries with over 50 million downloads. And as a coach to the coaches, Abel has worked with thousands of people across the world to optimize performance, mindset, health, and longevity. Abel is also a musician and has toured North America and Europe. And on top of that, he's also a poet. His new book of irreverent poetry, Designer Babies Still Gets Scabies, is a number one international bestseller in humor. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Thank you for coming on the show, Abel. I am so delighted you made time for us. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. You know, I already mentioned it in the intro. You are what I consider a polymath. You have expertise in many different areas. And I want to talk about how all these things connect with each other and how someone who is a leader in health and fitness also has a voice in poetry and via your poetry also takes a political stance and also how music has informed your life. Your life is just such a scope of multifaceted things. It's fascinating to me. But before we go into more detail, I'd like for you to tell us a little bit more about your backstory. For those in the audience who are not yet part of the millions of fans that you have internationally, please tell us how you got into health and fitness. Sure. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, <laughs> I was I was raised in New Hampshire, so in the U.S., a rural place that didn't have a lot of connection to advanced Western medicine. But even at a young age, I, my brother as well, but I got very ill and became, long story short, allergic to almost all the antibiotics out there, almost all the solutions that Western medicine had to a few il illnesses we had when we were younger. So my mom, who was a nurse at the time, uh, realized that she had to explore or she took it upon herself, I should say, to explore something deeper. She got a, an advanced degree, eventually wrote a book on herbs and using herbs uh, in healing in traditional Western medicine as well, and uh, how to incorporate plants, especially wildcrafted plants, into clinical practice. And so I was kind of raised in, in this wacky alternative health world to some degree, uh, where if I got sick, it was like a a collection of tinctures and bombs and just like weird things that my mom would literally create herself. Then of course I, I had to prove that I was better than that being a type a, you know, like overachiever. And so after college, when I got my first real job to pay off my loans, uh, I got wonderful health insurance and I'd never really had that before taking it for a spin. And so being someone who was very, you know, interested in performance and self-improvement, tracking and things like that. The idea was really attractive to me that I had the option of going into the doctor every two weeks and measuring my blood, my urine and the rest of that. The only problem was after following his advice, my biomarkers all got far worse and I gained like 30 pounds and then had problems with my thyroid. Then I was on, you know, at the end of that uh, 18 months, 
a half dozen different prescription medications that I didn't actually need, as it turns out. So it was uh, really <laughs> dipping my toes into the the other world and, and using my ego uh, where I, I just had this huge fall from grace and realizing that I had been doing the wrong thing so well that I was getting horrible results before all of my, you know, like I was in my early 20s. And so most of my coworkers were just going out to happy hour every night anyway. And, and, you know, didn't really care to the extent that I did because I did ultimately, I was always a, a runner. I loved doing different sports and things like that. And I wanted to maintain good health and good performance, certainly throughout my 20s, but throughout my life. And so uh, when I realized that there's a lot of or, or the extent of hoodwinking that's involved in some of nutrition and fitness, uh, I, I thought it was really something that uh, I had to prioritize in my own life. Another long story short, I lost everything in an apartment fire. And so that was something that recalibrated where I was at because that was basically me at my sickest metabolically speaking and the rest of my life was ruined and so i kind of needed that rock bottom to have the momentum to go back the other way and i wouldn't have started my podcast and my blogs and written all those books if it hadn't been for ricocheting off that rock bottom i think to some degree so it's important to honor that uh, but what you say with hitting rock bottom uh it can be such a catalyst for many people but a lot of us, when life throws the worst at us, it's so hard, you know, to crawl up from this rock bottom. What yeah. motivated you? What made you actually grab life by the horns and create it, recreate yourself the way you need it? I don't know if I love saying this, but it, I was really mad uh, <laughs> when I started to get incredible results doing the opposite in a lot of ways of what my doctor was telling me, or he said it would stop my heart or, or all these other things. Once I started experimenting with intermittent fasting and these more kind of self-empowering strategies around preventative health, as opposed to, you know, let's treat all the symptoms with Western medicine approach. Uh, for me, I experienced that pretty intensely and hard at a really emotional point in my life where I just lost all my physical possessions. And so when I realized that I could get like 30 pounds off in around a month if I actually wanted to and followed the right principles and looked around at my family all and friends and like so many of my peers who basically pretty much all of them were carrying 20, 30, 40 extra pounds, if, if you're going to be honest about it, uh, even and especially some of the health oriented ones, you know, and so for me, kind of like realizing, oh, this is a mechanism, you can kind of like play with these variables and achieve this outcome, uh, I, I started printing up just little documents at Kinko's before, long before my book, just of like these general principles to follow. And all of a sudden, like a bunch of my, uh, you know, friends who I went to college with or high school with lost 20, 40 pounds in just a month or two. And then they told their aunts about it and, and the rest of it. And I just, that felt important to me. And I wanted to follow that. And it felt like much more meaningful than than some of the other ways that I may have been making money, like working in consulting or having a typical job where even, you know, it's like the money was pretty good and it was worth it. It was hard to give up something like that, especially something so reliable and then jump in just to something that's definitely not reliable. And is the sharks are circling from day one, you know, so it's it's been a, a crazy journey. But I really I'm so grateful for pretty much everything that's happened. Even the mistakes were lessons. Mm. And what you said, it is so meaningful. I feel when we're not in balance, when we're physically, mentally unbalanced and it could be the 20 30 pounds of weight we're schlepping around we could be afflicted with anxiety or anything that's just not right it keeps us from living our fullest potential right. so it's it's not just about looks it's not just quote about fitness it's really about al allowing our spirits to blossom fully unhindered by any of these grievances and in your book the wild diet you focus on an ancestral way of eating can you explain to us the tenets of this way of life and what it means to you with regards to how you fuel your body on a regular basis. I think it's important to have some sort of prism through which you see the world and also recognize what that is. Recognize that that has limitations. So I think a good, a good prism or a good paradigm is that we should be eating the majority of our diet should come from whole unprocessed foods that are 
not manipulated by man or machine, certainly not those with a profit bent, you know, with an obvious bent toward profit. And, and, and so starting there and also looking back to see that, okay, so we're in, in trouble right now. Most of the developed world and increasingly, increasingly the rest of the world is gaining weight and having so many different problems with, uh, with disease that is lifestyle and diet related. When you look around and see that, it, it's so important to focus on eating, looking back instead of looking forward in a lot of cases. So yes, there are incredible inv- advances in tracking technologies, in, in medicine, in creating growing food, but a lot of them aren't implemented for your health at this point, for the overall end consumer. And success isn't measured, unfortunately, in our society from that direction. And so it's really upon each each one of us to take our own responsibility for our health. So I kind of say that if you want to practice health, it's an act of self-defense most of the time. You know, it's like something where you have to have your shields up to some degree because you're going to be singled out as the weirdo swimming upstream, whatever cliche you want to use. It's, it's, you, you have to embrace that and then uh, move forward. So anyway, looking back in time to the way that our grandparents would have grown their own gardens and eaten that food um, and, and noticing as well that, you know, our grandparents' generation and great-grandparents didn't have to deal with obesity during their lifetimes. The vast majority of them, it just wasn't an issue. And, and a lot of other uh, problems also weren't an issue. So looking at a simplified diet of whole unprocessed foods, I think is a great place to start. And also trying to look at physical uh, movement and the requirements of that we, that we have to put back into our lives that would have been there before, like working out, we call it now. You would never run 10 miles for no reason a few generations ago, but you were running 10 miles every freaking day, whether you liked it or not. Superhumanize. You know, with regards to yourself, uh, when you transitioned, uh, what were the most difficult things for you to overcome? And what were the tools you used to be successful for staying consistent and eating right consistently? The thing that was most important was embracing intermittent fasting and cycles of undereating and then overeating or refeeding post workout. So once I learned to partition the majority of my carbs to the post workout and and really, I guess, strategically set up my physical activity to align with those refeeds and the cravings and indulging in them sometimes, uh, it became so much easier. You know, it's one of those things where I actually was surprised by how seamless it felt because I used to be hungry every two hours. I used to kind of, if I didn't have that, I would struggle mentally to just stay focused and I'd be distracted because I was, I was hungry. I was like being pulled down into my stomach, just nagged, right, by hunger pangs. And so when that started to go away and I experienced more clarity, it really wasn't from eating food. And I want to be clear about that because most of the good things happen to you while you're not eating food. And, mm-hmm. and also the act of eating food in today's society is kind of like trying to reduce the burden on your own system by avoiding toxins that shouldn't be there in the form of pesticides or just garbage ingredients that are non-foods in, you know, all of the food that you find in most popular restaurants, certainly fast food restaurants, but even fancy chains, even fancy hotels. It's like you can't spend money uh, and and have it like say you're comfortable and you have a bunch of money and you just throw money at it. You can't solve it that way either. You still have to do the work. And that's that's an important lesson. The longer that you do this, the more the grooves in your habits and even way of thinking are just kind of set up so you can go with that flow instead of following the lemon, the lemmings off the cliff, so to speak, you know, where it's just looking around, it's not pretty. So it's clear that we have to do something. We, we certainly have to take that responsibility. Absolutely. I like to talk about radical responsibility. And it, what's the wonderful thing about that? It's not a scary thing. It's a beautiful thing because it takes yeah. us out of being victims and being victimized, you know, and it makes us act instead of reacting. It makes us 
take action in a world. We happen to the world, not the world is happening to us. You know, we can stop fending off stuff all the time and just living life from our balanced inner center. And food is a hugely important part of that as is exercise. With the, regards to the intermittent fasting, what is your window, actually? What does work best for you? It moves a little bit. When I first started, it was 16-8. So mm -hmm. I would just push out my breakfast until noon, generally speaking, and then eat dinner and stop after that most nights. Some, some nights I would have fun, especially when I first started. I was, I was much more lax about it. And then I found as time went on, I could get closer to 2 or 3 p.m. maybe, feeling comfortably, just you know, still rocking. And a lot of times I would test this during interview days because I batch my interview. I'm doing 12 in like two days, and I like batch them back to back and back. It, it doesn't really work for me to eat that well. And I take that from when I was performing as a musician, sometimes doing four shows a day. It's like I would eat at the end of the day. I, it's, you know, like before a show, it just didn't feel right. Before a big run, it didn't feel right. Um, and even right after a big run. So once I, I stopped being afraid of not eating sometimes, yeah. I, I just found an incredibly empowering thing where you don't have to do anything, you don't have to <laughs> spend money, and sometimes you can have more energy for doing so, and your body is actually better off. Now, you can't just also find that fasting is the solution and say, all right, I'm just going to do a 20-day fast and drink no water. No, you'll die. There is no one single solution to all of this. There's no magic bullet. But I think... Uh, most of us do eat too often, and we've habituated to that. And if we can embrace the times intuitively uh, where we don't feel that hunger and we don't need to uh, overeat, then it's really important for your body to develop that metabolic skill to be able to just get by with a bit less food. Because the caloric demands, if you add them up of our physical lives today, especially like given the past year are not what they used to be. Like P P my brother is a, is a farmer who does it the hard way, no till and, and all that stuff. And like the amount of calories that he's burning through compared to me standing here all day doing interviews is not even close. It's not even close. And so most of us are just habituated to uh, the comforts and, and the pleasures that are involved with just kind of eating all day. And, and those are undeniable, but the benefits of, of, you know, doing the opposite of that are wonderful to experience if you give that a fair shake. Yes. And giving it some time. So your, your body and also your brain, uh, your synaptic connections, your habits yeah. can get used to it is really, really important. And of course, we all like to indulge and it feels wonderful in the moment. But the long-term effects, I have had so many people come to me, especially now, who have literally put on 10, 20 or more pounds. And the long-term effects of that can be pretty devastating if you don't, you know, get it under control now. As a culture, we've eaten, we're eating too much. We're eating the wrong things. Uh, we consider this part of the good life, but it actually gives us a bad life in the long time. You know, what I really love about you and your wife, Allison, who co-wrote the book, The Wild Diet, is you always put a big emphasis on spiritual work. And I've heard you talk about, uh, you, you're just telling me you're um, in Colorado and Cranston, a very spiritual community where you've been for the past two years. And I've heard you also talk about how you took a break from everything that was going on in your life. And you had a nomadic lifestyle for a while. You went into the mountains. What does spiritual work look like for you? And what does spiritual study mean to you? I love those questions so much. Well, maybe I'll answer it two ways. The first one that most people need is just space. People just need to take a step back, give themselves space, either for you know an extended period of time where you just take off for a few weeks and you go camping or you go out to the wilderness or you go just mostly in silence where if you wanted to go the whole day without speaking, which I would recommend from time to time, um, you do that and you experience it. And going the whole day without any sort of input, well, any sort of artificial technological input, you know, I should say. You can still, you can never block out the wind or, or the bird singing, but you don't want to because that's a different deal to me. So anyway, I think going and experiencing some amount of of nature or space uh, is, and or, or even silence and just, you know, if you're 
you can go into your bedroom and, and put headphones on with no music or white noise and just silence with a little bit of deep breathing. That goes a long way because, you know, I like reading different types of spiritual books, maybe for 10, 15 minutes a day, kind of a minimum, but I, it's all over the place. You know, uh, so I really like Zen Buddhist books recently. And it's important to note that the the goal isn't to keep going. It's you're already there. Like the bullfrog already won. The one that's just sitting there, he's doing it and you're not, <laughs> you know, so I, I try not to overcomplicate things, but at the same time, I think it's really important. And you can see this in, in kind of the variety of my work with the music and the poetry, especially that language is more about what's communicated than the words S studying symbols studying different religions, studying the way that languages are put together in different languages, I think is really important in achieving some amount of spiritual understanding or defense against language being used against us, yeah. which is, you know, for me writing music and singing music, it was, it was before I even started writing, I was singing songs and I'm like, wait a minute, what am I singing? <laughs> you know, because growing up in the nineties, all these punk rock songs, some rap songs and stuff, not that I could rap, but you know, just like all of these different repeated phrases I realized are mantras. They're not different from mantras, you, you know, nothing matters or every little thing matters. And I, I prefer to think that every little thing matters. And so if mantras matter and you do that, then what's happening to us when like we're at a wedding singing these horrible, just disgusting, degraded you know, lyrics, it, it's doing something. And uh, so I think that studying that or trying to deconstruct that or just play with it is an important part of being spiritual. In a lot of cases, that's what studying spiritual stuff is. Cause like, what is spirit? It's all one. It's just like, they're just putting words on it and no one can des describe it. So they're all trying to from different directions and perspectives, but it's all just kind of communication and your own understanding of symbols and meaning and reading the same line can be completely different. The same words, completely different, you know, certainly years later, but even the next day, you're like, how did I read this yesterday and not understand this? Superhumanize. And I love what you said about language because language is a framework. Uh, it can be also a certain box. It, it shapes how we think, how we perceive the world, each other. And even though we may not be able to change a language or certain, uh, certain phrases that we use, simply becoming aware of them can already free your mind. And yes, I agree with you. A lot of these phrases that are repeated, whether it's music or, or certain things we just keep saying culturally in our languages, it's, they're like mantras and words do have power. Thoughts can be measured. The, uh, the, the energy of thoughts can be measured. Uh, they actually also uh, produce synaptic, your mind, things you keep thinking about produce the synaptic connections in your brain via proteins, you can literally measure that. Thoughts have weight. Yeah. I was just speaking uh, to the neuroscientist, Dr. Caroline Leaf about that. And to, to know that, that, you know, our mind, our thoughts have power, words have power to look at language and how we use it, to look at the symbols, um, you know, we use, but that we also get bombarded with. And here's another word, bombarded. Where does that come, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're, we literally are inundated by symbols all day long and you know things that we use daily whether it's our our uh, technology uh, here the, the bitten apple right where does that come from the bite out of the apple or on a dollar bill corporate logos what does it do to our brain so becoming aware is massively important and not it's just very entertaining at the least yeah, it's very entertaining. Um, you're clearly someone who's very, very passionate about uh, big existential questions. Um, and you have also often taken a, a stance, uh, you know, uh, with regards to corporate media and government policies. And I want to talk about your poetry. Uh, with regards to that, your book, Designer Baby, still gets scabies. It's a number one bestseller, I think, in five countries around the world, right? Including the US, my birth country, Germany, France, the UK, and Australia. And I'd actually like to read some excerpts. Thanks. So 
there was one um, poem I particularly like. I'm just going to read a part of it, but it's called The Consumers. There's more to life, I presume, than just to consume, 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 filling our bellies noon to noon, blowing our bodies up like balloons, trashing billions of plastic spoons, sitting scared in our cocoons, idolizing greedy, disgusting tycoons, using oceans as petrochemical spittoons, making dumps of all the lagoons, treating rivers like our bathrooms. What inspired you to write? Designer baby still gets scabies, and I love the title. It was <clears throat> seeing too much for me to say mm. with the public persona or the the you know on my podcast or in a place that made sense. <laughs> it was having too much like feeling and and seeing maybe a little too much of the trajectory of where we might be going before mm. other people noticed or before other people cared from a variety of, uh, of different topics, you know? I, so <laughs> I was just, I created space after I woke up for a few months. And uh, one of the reasons I did that, you know, to, to, to basically just free write and see what would come out is because my parents had uh, gone through their, their old house and old stuff. And they're like, we don't want this anymore. Like, you take this. And, and so it was a bunch of my old poetry that I wrote when I was like 11 or 12 or, or 14. And so like five or 10 of the poems in there are from when I was 13, 14 or 15, writing about political things. And when I found them again, and it totally, you know, like 20 years later or whatever, in a totally different administration and a totally different timeline and, and, and reality, uh, they really, still worked. And I was like, what? How does that, does that doesn't make any sense? Well, let's see what happens because I was dealing with a lot of, uh, just frustration and anxiety because shadow banning censorship and all that stuff. We got a hearty taste and dose of that in like 2018, 2019. And I didn't know what to do do about that or say about it. And it was well before anyone acknowledged that that could even happen. And so it was kind of an isolating, weird experience. And uh, so anyway, I just made the space for it. And these, these, I would think about a frustration usually, or I would think about a beautiful idea. And I would just go with that for a while and see what came out. And I realized that I could say a lot more and get away with more if I rhymed it than I could if I just said it. So uh, I, I made sure to rhyme some of them. <laughs> I love it. And um, you you just brought it up with the uh, shadow banning. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. I know a lot of uh, health and wellness sites have been hit with this, uh, you know, whether it's the social media or even the website traffic over the last, uh, especially over the last 24 uh, um, months or so. What happened there? Yeah, well, basically, anyone who didn't get the stamp of approval from the top down, it seems, got pushed to the side or buried or delisted or just like became something where if you already followed them, you can still kind of see them, but you won't see most of their posts. And if you try to search for them, they won't be there, uh, even though they are there. It, it was, it, you know, but on every platform at the same time, basically. And not just to us, but also to a number of people whose like books are throughout my library of yeah. academics of people who are scientists, of people who are just, you know, independent bloggers and writers and stuff like that, or musicians too, some of them too. So I, I don't I don't know how important it is to even care about if it was strategic or if it was planned or if, you know, if it was an attack on anyone individually. But more what happened, I think, is the mainstreaming of all of the internet. For a little bit there, the academics who had had a blog, you know, since 1999 writing about science, had the one up on Google. Like they were there. If you looked for their, whatever their thing was, whatever their area of research was, they would come up first. And then, you know, same thing with YouTube. And then it's like, just no, Fox News, MSN, this talking head, that talking head, and similar thing kind of on all these platforms. So I think it was a combination of that. And then also a big dynamic shift was we always worked by organic 
traffic, which means organic people find you just through word of mouth or searching for something you come up and then, uh, you know, they find your stuff and that's how you build a community. That's how you grow. And then the people who used that way of growing, which doesn't rely on paying Facebook or paying Google or paying anyone else to grow, uh, they basically stopped getting any <laughs> juice mm-hmm. and that business model stopped working because all these platforms decided, no, 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 we're just going to charge anyone to reach their own community because it's our community. It's not theirs. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was, you know, as a, as someone who's a creator watching a lot of my peers go through that, some of them didn't, they weren't allowed to keep going because of that sort of change. And, you know, it's so dark but they just call it a change. It's an algorithm change. A little algorithm change is coming on Tuesday. Thanks, Google. They're just updating things over there. Uh, but it did make me ask serious questions. I never got a reason why mm-hmm. any one of us got our Wikipedia pages removed, got delisted from Google or, or whatever. It's like I never got a single email from any of these platforms. And I'm not aware of anyone else who did either. And so that's another just wacky thing where it's like, but why? Like, what did I do? How can I make this better? Which, how many more words can I not say to make this better? And so uh, that's that's just one of the reasons that I think it's so important to have a creative outlet. Because when you are being censored, you're also self-censoring. And that's the point. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't know which words will get you censored. That hit me pretty hard, and that's why it made it so important to write poetry, to write songs, to get it out with music, because you have to get it out. You can't just sit with it too long. It's too dark. So you might as well make fun of it. Yes, you have to get it out for your own sake, but also for other people's sake. So, you know, to actually inspire discussions like we're having right now. And it's very interesting. Um, I was just listening to a discussion on Clubhouse this morning. Uh, Social media platform is relatively new uh, where people can converse with each other in these virtual rooms. They're from all across the world. And it was about... uh, algorithms. It was about censorship. And, you know, if you look at countries where the censorship is outward, it's there, and they're working with social credit systems, right? If you don't toe the line, then you can't get loans, you can't get into college. So all kinds of stuff happens to you. You know, look at countries like China, where they're implementing the social credit system everywhere now. Um, But at least, at least, not to say that that's good, but at least you know what you've got. Where in our you know, culture in our different countries, whether we're in the US or European countries, their censorship is happening too. It's just not really talked about. And like you said, whether it was deliberate, whether it's just an algorithm, it's something we do need to talk about. And another thing is ownership of our data. We look at the platforms, obviously, you know, uh, you're also running a business, but you built a huge community, it's huge value. So, Shouldn't we own our data? That's where there's a lot of interesting developments, for example, by a blockchain coming in that could help the individuals own their data and then only via a contract allow the big companies that are making billions of dollars with the data to actually use it. And there's also something in it for these corporations because instead of spending tons of money on data analysts for pretty much each and every customer, they could just go into an agreement with a customer themselves. And brave new world. I am optimistic. I hope that we can turn things around. I've also been keeping an eye on what you just have said, the censorship, and it's not good. No, it's it's not good. And we know where it goes. Like, mm-hmm. haven't we all read the dystopian novels? Like, they weren't supposed to be instruction manuals. I heard someone yeah. else say, and I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, but it really is going in that direction. So when it does, there's always, you know, the pendulum swings back, or at least there's, there are some people who see that and are angry enough about it to build something. And the blockchain is something that I've geeked out about for a while. And and the decentralization, the idea that you can't be throttled by some all powerful unelected entity that's that's super you know behind the scenes and non-transparent that that won't happen so there will be new problems that come out of that which is important to acknowledge but also there's a lot of promise so in, in a lot of ways what we're doing and what i would recommend to other people out there who are trying to run a business or whatever and, and navigate this is just continue to do the work and wait or build that thing and it's coming like it's it's only a matter of time and I think it'll be here 
earlier for some communities than others as always. But once it's here, they're going to eat Facebook's lunch. Google will maybe be MySpace after that. You know, like these giant tech platforms think that they're here forever, but they're not. They disappear overnight and the next one appears usually overnight. And that's what I'm looking forward to. And I'm going to help whoever builds something that is more of a meritocracy or that is more based on, okay, this person wants to follow or be friends with this person. Isn't that their connection as a person, not owned data, as you mentioned, by some tech platform to exploit? Like that shouldn't be the way that this works. And because of blockchain, because of technology, ironically enough, Facebook, I do believe will become in some ways obsolete. They'll probably adapt and still be big and buy up a bunch of other companies and try to maintain their monopoly, but they will become irrelevant. And something else will become much more relevant, at least in terms of advancing culture in a positive direction, because they're completely irrelevant for that. They've proven that over and over again. Superhumanize. And, you know, uh, with regards to blockchain and what I just brought up before. So if you tie the ownership of your data uh, to blockchain and then you as, you know, the, the product, <laughs> because that's what we are when we're using these big platforms, you decide who you enter into contract with and, and you actually sell with your consent, your data. The numbers that were talked about were that what you could earn would on a daily basis allow you to cover your groceries. Wow. And if you look at the vast humanity out there for whom this is a massive deal to basically have your survival guaranteed, you look at many of these countries where a lot of people, you know, they, they, they have mobile phones, they conduct uh, business via them, and, and uh, there's a lot of data that yeah. they create and for people to be able to pay for their daily lives not have to worry about that that would be a huge shift to the greater better good for humanity yeah i mean technology can be used for good everyone everyone has forgotten that because just like these giant tech overlords have completely squandered all trust mm -hmm. but you know technology should be used for good i started mining a small amount of crypto like a year ago just to kind of see what that was like and the idea that people can use their own computers and phones and, and gadgets or whatever and bandwidth that isn't being used by them to achieve something that that improves connectivity for their neighbors and and for other cultures that live online in virtual worlds i mean that's amazing that's amazing so you know i i can come off as anti-tech sometimes but i really don't mean to because it's yeah. more about how people are squandering trust while while using technology in a lazy way it's it's lazier to make mm -hmm. money by exploiting people than it is to do the work and just make it make it better right like if people could get a lot of their food completely paid for yeah, even if you don't care about this morally or you're not a do-gooder, uh, from a pragmatic uh, point of view, if you just want to make money, it really might make sense for you and your company too. Like I said, you would forego the massive cost of data analysts and and other, you know, that uh, and that's a massive expenditure for a lot of these companies. Uh, you mentioned something before. You're speaking about, um, you know, dystopias and 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 uh, these all these books that we've been reading and movies. They should be manuals for our future. Right. Um, I've spoken to a lot of uh, well-known transhumanists on this podcast in the past, and I love the the potential that we have to create a greater, better world. Yeah. And, but there's something that uh, you've also said. Uh, so, so why will designer babies and brain implants not save us? Anything that takes us farther from our humanity won't save us is the way that I, I feel in the same way that that little frog or tortoise has already figured it out. You know, that the solution and progress won't necessarily come from becoming Borg in Star Trek or becoming, you know, it's, that, it's, the, that, it's just hilarious to me that almost all of these movies, this is the bad thing that happens in the plot <laughs> is that you get like jacked into the matrix or you have some sort of brain implant that's the, but they're a tech overlord. And it's like, this always happens. So anyway, that's not what will save us. Uh, we're already saved if we if we want to be the guru is not out there. It's kind of in there too. Now you have to you have to do the work, and that's that's the combination. And it, you know, 
it's a different conversation too when we're talking about someone who's always been blind or went blind because of a traumatic brain injury who is able to see again. But then it's a different conversation if they can see through your underwear because of that implant, right? Like, and so it's not a solution. It's, it, it could be, but also there are new problems that start com- coming up. And so that's why I think it's important that people, it seems like people are waiting for it. It seems like people are waiting for this thing that's just like, oh, that'll solve all my problems when the government pays all my bills or when the tech overlords let us use our own data and that'll pay, or I'll wait for this next thing to come and I'll get the brain jack so I can be smarter than all my friends. And, uh, it's important that we do the work first and and just kind of show up every day, do the things that we know work, like squats and deadlifts and drinking your water and going for a walk, you know, and getting sunlight and 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 all sorts of other things. Like focus on that with the majority of your energy and don't wait for technology. But, you know, we can be excited. I'm wearing a CGM continuous glucose monitor right now and geeking out about it. You know, I love I love to and measuring my HRV for more than two two years on pretty much a daily basis. There's a lot of promise, especially for a few hundred dollars. You know, you spend a few hundred dollars in a couple of different directions, like red light, infrared light therapy, uh, blue blocking glasses, uh, HRV tracking or sleep tracking, just like a few different things like that. And you can get magnificent uh, insights and then results based on that, but you don't need to jack into your brainstem in order to get there. And you don't need to wait for that either. Yes, I agree. I love all the tools that you just uh, listed. I use them myself and you, you can really uplift your life and, and have get a better sense of well-being. Um, what I found really crucial that you said is you don't wait, don't wait for the big yeah. tech companies to pay for you you know, your life, don't just don't wait, you know, become a creator. Your life has been a lot about reinvention and tremendous creativity. And you're also a musician, um, as I mentioned, as you talked about, and we see uh, for those of um, the audience who are actually looking at the video, see the uh, instruments in the background. And um, creativity has been a basis of your success. Is this something you've always cultivated? And is there a way to combine creativity with making a living? Yes, there is a way to combine those things. But maybe I'll start there where uh, it's important not to squeeze money out of projects that you shouldn't squeeze money out of Mm -hmm. or where you're not getting the results that you want to from a business standpoint. It would be great if all of the talented artists and musicians and performers could afford a living by doing that art that they're extremely talented in, but that's just not how the world works for most people. (laughs) And, and, you know, like young musicians and I hate hearing that too. I hate saying that, but you can still do the work and get there. And so it doesn't matter really where your money comes from, as long as you're paying the bills in an ethical way. And it doesn't matter if it's coming from your music or your art, because it's, uh, it's something where you really don't want to live in the space where you're squeezing money out of it. Because where it brought me and a lot of my friends also as musicians is a, a really, you know, initially attractive lifestyle of, of traveling around and, you know, staying up all night, partying and meeting all sorts of people. Um, but you're not well compensated. You're expected to to be the life of the party, which often means just taking five tequila shots in a row in the middle, you know, and, and there's all of that. And if you try to keep making money there, then you're playing private parties where they're selecting which songs you play with, with those lyrics, which you may or may not agree with spiritually speaking at essentially a religious function a lot of the time. So that's, that gets heavy after a while, not at first, like, you know, bright-eyed and, and young and taking all the gigs. It's like, wow, this is amazing. And then all the, those parties that go into the middle of the night where people want you to sing all the wrong songs, you know, where where people are just trashed and, and debased and degraded. That's not what I want, <laughs> you know? Like, that's not, even if I'm paid, and I got paid more money than I'd, like, ever seen. Like, someone handed me over a thousand dollars for playing like some songs that he wanted me. And I'm just like, this is weird. Like, this is not why I'm doing this. So anyway, 
there's no shame in having side projects or having a, a main job that pays your bills and then doing your art. And that's the way that pretty much all of, not all, but a lot of the great artists who we recognize now lived the majority of their lives where they were unrecognized and uncompensated for the, for the most part, for their art, their entire lives. Then they died. Now they're a legend. Isn't that great? The publishing houses are making a, you know, a killing on that. But, but the point is working on your craft is kind of like, to me, staying in shape where mm -hmm. you don't have to, like you don't, especially when you reach a certain level of mastery in skill and in whatever domain, you don't have to keep going. You can kind of just keep coasting, but it honors your craft to keep going. And then for me, surprisingly, like, even though I'm not directly compensated by music, like I used to, like I used to make a good living as a musician, as a teenager, but then the money got sucked out of music in a lot of ways and it stopped being fun, uh, in that way anyway. And so no shame in making your money from something that makes more sense from a business standpoint and then continuing to honor your craft just by showing up in the same way that you would show up to stay in shape or eat well or stay hydrated where it's like you it, you don't have to make a massive commitment to it but you know some of my friends in the visual arts they're doing it every day they're it's they it honors their craft mm. and it's not because they're selling it <laughs> superhumanize and with regards to honoring the craft and practicing this creativity, becoming a successful creator and, and success in the mean that you are actually putting forth something into the world that you're passionate about. Um, can you share with us some of the tools that you use to hone your craft, your creativity? Yeah. Space is a big one, mm. but I would just say a sketchbook of any size that's mm. that you fill at least one page a day. And it could be, you know, something that's organizing your brain into to-do lists or which I'm a big fan of old school um, writing down my priorities for the day and scratching them out when I'm done. Even if it's something that's in my Google calendar, that's all like I know what's there. I'm still writing it down and I'm giving myself credit yeah. physically, viscerally for scratching that out. That's that's really important. Mm -hmm. And looking at a blank page and not being intimidated by that is really important. Avoiding technology is extremely important. And then, you know, I think it's really fitness that's that's shown me the results. And, and also like uh, Qigong training, mm -hmm. uh, the results that are more from doing a little bit every day for a long time that adds up as opposed to the immediate things. And so for me in music, I always hated playing with a metronome and, and I always hated just like running through scales, going up and down and playing the same, just basically drills, doing push-ups next to the pool instead of swimming. Like I much preferred swimming. And now, uh, as time has gone on, I've really appreciated just going deep into the, the push-ups next to the pool technique drills sometimes because it makes everything else easier not right away. It sucks. It's terrible. It's no fun. It doesn't sound like a song or whatever, but it's working and it's making the next, reaching that next level of expression easier the next time you want to go. You don't have to struggle and wince to get there next time because it's, oh, it was already there now. And, and so I think that's what we want to continuously get after. But like, <laughs> Other people, especially if you if you experience a few successes, people will put you on this pedestal and then you want to kick back and like you don't want to be Michael Jordan in the offseason gaining 50 pounds or whatever, right? Like he didn't gain 50 pounds in the offseason for a reason. And uh, so don't rest on your laurels, like embrace the good times and celebrate the ups for sure. Uh, but then get back to work. That's the most important part is you don't like, I don't feel myself unless I'm in good fighting shape as a musician. Like mm -hmm. if I'm out of practice, I, I am embarrassed to walk around. It seems weird in this world. And so everyone has that with something. So find what that is for you and double down on it and then, and then work on that craft. And with regards to music, which is your craft and an area of expertise for you, you also published a book, The Musical Brain, in which you explore the relationship between music, 
uh, language evolution and the human brain. What is the effect of music on the brain and how can we use music to upgrade our brains? It's uh, obviously a big subject for me, but one thing that I think everyone can take away is it changes your brain state, whether you're aware of that or not. The the background music, the background sounds that are going on at all times are changing your cognition for better or worse. So if you want to harness it for better, there are a couple of things that you can do. Listening to music with lyrics is bad, usually if you want to do anything that's writing related or anything that's speech related, because it's uh, basically like interfering with the same system of the brain, the phonological loop. So listening to, for some people, like I love listening to music that's in instrumental or that doesn't have any any lyrics, I should say, any lyrics in a language that you understand. Because actually you can listen to languages that you don't understand with the singers. Mm -hmm. But once again, it gets harder if you recognize the melody. If it's like a song, if it's like a Beatles song or something that you know the melody to that you hear someone singing in another language, that also interferes. So there are all sorts of little weird things that happen. So acknowledge the sounds that are in your environment. Try to take control of them if you can. If you have to use headphones or earbuds, that's cool. Um, and then focus on the songs that you like that don't have lyrics or try to find something that's that's vibey or that that you feel like gets you into a productive mood. Sometimes even just, you know, I'm not a big fan of the AI focus playlists and stuff like that, that you find on like Spotify and, and some of these, because it's just kind of garbage. It's fine, but it's kind of garbage. And so listening to um, Rick Beato is a great music educator on, on YouTube and some other platforms. And he, um, I don't know if he coined this, but he's a big fan of, of, of saying, get your kids and, and yourself to listen to high information music. Mm -hmm. uh, and so basically listening to Rachmaninoff or listening to something that or even a really advanced African beat that's syncopated or, or something that's international that you don't recognize. And if, if you do that, it, it tends to raise your level of arousal, which can be great for getting things done, sometimes uh, kicking back. But, if you want to know which songs are kind of going to rev you up versus cool you down, just think of every beat as a heartbeat mm -hmm. and, and, and count those. And for the most part, our brains are wired to calm down at like the, if you think of thump, 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 I think of a heartbeat or I think of almost like a funeral march or something that's really just kind of sad or, or, or slow. And then, you know, if you think of your favorite dance songs, they're just bouncing all over the place. And, and so you can modulate your own physiology by, you know, if you've ever looked down to notice that what you're listening to, you're stepping to yep. that beat, right? You can use that for good. You can use that tempo for training and running. A lot of the best runners will do just that. But also just be aware that whatever that person is saying in your earbud, those lyrics is like a mantra. And if it's something gross, it's not good for you. It's, it's kind of like junk food. It's like junk media. And there's plenty out there. You do have to do some digging and it's harder work than it should be to kind of curate, curate your own uh, list of, of favorite music or dance songs or chill tunes or whatever, but make your own playlists. I would say to, to most people uh, dig around, like spend some time finding music you like, especially that's in instrumental based. I really like a lot of acoustic guitar instrumental music like some of that on ancient instruments or weird harp guitars and things like that can be really just nice like typical spa music that doesn't have too much technology in it uh so anyway that's that's just kind of a general overview of how people can select some music but listening to new novel different music that you're not used to is great for pretty much everyone but mm -hmm. just stay away from the gross mantras superhumanize yeah, keep those gross mantras out of your perception, uh, wise words. And you already mentioned Qigong and keeping a sketchbook. Um, I'd like for you to share with us some of the practices that have been instrumental in your life to elevating it mentally, spiritually, or physically. I think breathing is, is a large part of the Qigong that I don't mm -hmm. 
I didn't give credit to for a while because I did do some of the Wim Hof breathing and other just kind of deep breathing and the more yoga. And I just never got into it. And, and if I can't get into it, it's hard for me to do it every day. Whereas the Qigong exercises, it's just like it felt like a whole body or, or it feels, I should say, because I still do it the majority of most days. Um, it, it's something where it feels like it's all encompassing and I don't have to do the work and focus on my breath. I don't like focusing on my breath too much. it's a bizarre I I grew up playing clarinet and saxophone and so I'm really thankful for the um that helped me with singing later and and speaking as well I think breath control is something that's infinitely important and and the people who haven't done it uh will get more results at the beginning but everyone needs to experience some amount of taking control over your breath and then using that to better your your physiological response, which it just it works for me pretty much every time. Going out in the sun, deep breaths, especially with some qigong movements, and boom, right there. So that's that's a big one. It's physical movement. Also, you know, at the beginning when I first started doing it, which is coming up, not quite a decade, but it's coming up on it. Um, I'm just like, this doesn't feel like it's doing anything. Why am I doing this for even ten minutes? This feels like it's wasting my time. And then I realized after doing it for for a while, and it's just, you know, I'm doing an interview with an oncologist tomorrow and reading this book about cancer and, and thinking about just like all of the ways that in the Western world, our bodies atrophy. Like if you don't keep bending over and having that hip hinge, and if you don't uh, move from one side to the other, your liver is never moving either. It's never being squeezed and con- contorted and, and the rest the same with the rest of your organs and your body and your nervous system isn't being primed to go through the full range of movement and maintain strength and mobility, all that. And so uh, I, anyway, the longer time goes on, the more I appreciate those simple things because it's way better to do five minutes of just silly looking Tai Chi, yoga, Qigong, like most days. It's way better to do that than be some weekend warrior trying to do some triathlon uh, who's not putting in the work, who's going to have a heart attack because you're not quite putting in, you know, the daily grind. Sometimes the daily grind can be a nice you know, a nice, not redlining feeling type adventure. It can be something that you do without even thinking about it. It doesn't have to take a whole lot of willpower or effort and you don't need to be thrashed or gassed afterwards. So it's really important to recognize that because a lot of the people who want quick results just, you know, totally thrash themselves. And then they're like, why am I not getting results right now? And it's really because you have to show up every day and do the small things. And that's what I realized, too. I I started off, you know, in in college as a music instructor. And, uh, you know, I would would teach kids and adults. The adults would almost never get anywhere because they're like, I'm giving you money. Why am I not getting better? And the kids would come up and even if played five minutes a day, they would pick up their guitar, they would play it, and they would get better every week. Every week they would get better. So just show up and put in a little bit of time, even if it's for stuff that seems like it it won't do that much. And it'll add up over time to something really, really powerful. Yes. And this is also something you speak about micro exercising. And what you just yeah. said, you don't need to thrash yourself. You don't need to punish yourself and start doing things that you don't look forward to because they just don't feel good and you're sore after, but just showing up every day and also doing it with a, with an ease and with a joy and where it just becomes part of the way you live. That's excellent advice, Abel. Thank you so much for sharing it. Um, is there anything that I didn't touch upon that you'd like the audience to know? And also where can the audience best connect with you if they want to learn more about you? I would say no matter where you are, appreciate it because, you know, there have been times where we've been up in in our career and in the spotlight and times not so much, but I, you know, nothing really got better for me than playing a gig that wasn't thousands of people, which, which I've done as well, but few hundred people who like friends in the crowd who you can see because they're right there, like calling out the tunes that you all want to experience it. Like it doesn't get better sometimes than the small feeling things that don't, you know, like they're not as fancy or they're not as high profile or whatever. So no matter where you are, you could be someone who's going to be famous or big someday. Appreciate not being that right now. Like appreciate it because also once you have these these high profile things, like that doesn't, you don't get that back, that innocence of just showing up and being the the nobody. You don't get that anymore. And oddly enough, it's something that 
that you do miss. And in these days where we're all online, you know, we're all having these different platforms. We all have like our own little celebrity in our town. You know, it's like we all have our own high school thing going on, dynamics going on in our little towns because we have social virtual accounts and stuff. So just be aware of that. Try not to be dehumanized by this whole experience and try to see the humanity and the people you disagree with. Uh, Keep in mind that like hearing from people with different perspectives is the whole point. You don't want to agree with everyone. Like it's, it's great to cross pollinate with different domains, with people who are coming from a different place with people with different perspectives. So try to keep an open mind, but also keep your shields up in this world. <laughs> Wonderful advice. And, and-, oh, and this place to find me, I would say would be uh fatburningman.com If you're looking for my podcast and the, the health related stuff, uh, and ablejames.com if you're looking for our virtual reality tours, some of the poetry and the music. That's abeljames.com. Wonderful. And I'll put everything, uh, also the other resources you mentioned, into the show notes. Abel, it's been an absolute delight to talk with you. Uh, thank you for being a guest today. And I look forward to following all the other things you're going to put out in the world with your brilliant creative mind. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I I do interviews all day. Like this has been one of those days and I have just loved your questions and your presence throughout the whole thing. So I just want to thank you for that. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 